Influencers for Good is a new ethical news platform dedicated to featuring incredible people doing incredible things for the planet according to five thematic pillars. People, planet, products, purpose, ideas and solutions. It is time to bring followers to what matters most, our planet and the good people working hard to protect it. A lot of the people and ideas featured on our platform and podcast don't have millions of followers, but they should. The problem is that they're too busy working really hard and we are here to give them a lift up with your help. So don't forget to follow, subscribe and share when you like our work. Welcome back to Influences for Good podcast. Today we have a very special guest all the way from Malaysia, uh, Mark Ancreaz. He was um, um, shortlisted at the Earthshot Prize in 2022 uh, with his project Putan. Um, hello, Mark. How are you? Hi, uh, I'm doing fine. I'm very happy to be here with you today. And we're very happy to. Do you want to give like a little intro to the listeners to what is your background? Um, how do we call you? Huh. I think you go by many, many, many titles, so we want to get them all right. Okay, so first of all, you can hear that I am French. I mean, I was born in Paris and raised in really? Paris. I, 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 I didn't detect any accent <laughs> whatsoever. I know, that's why I need to tell you. Uh, yeah, so I am, by training, I am a veterinarian. So I always wanted to work with wildlife. So this is why I, uh, I did follow this, uh, this career. And as soon as I finished my uh, studies in France, I started to work overseas. I went to Africa first, worked with several species, including gorillas, chimpanzees, elephants, then moved to Saudi Arabia, where I used to be in charge of the Arabian Oryx introduction program for the kingdom. And then at this time, I'm speaking about 30 years ago, uh, together with uh, Dr. Isabel Lachman, we decided to create our own uh, organization called Hutan. And with Hutan, what we wanted to do and what we still want to do is to try to find ways for people and wildlife to coexist, to live together, if you want, inside and outside protected areas. And so we created Hutan, as I said, about 30 years ago now, and we decided to start a project here in Borneo, in Sabah, which is a Malaysian part of the island. And we wanted to work with orangutans, which we did. You mean you've been around a little bit from uh, from Africa to the kingdom and then ending in Malaysia. Um, is it because, because you liked orangutans specifically or it was because there was a specific problem that was of majestic importance? What was the reasoning behind it? It was just like Malaysia is amazing, let's go there. Oh, orangutan, let's save them. How did it, how did it, how did you do the transition? There's such different, I mean, wildlife is so, such a wide spectrum and to go from, you know, I imagine the gorillas to oryx to then. Well, basically, yeah, basically I'm interested in any type of wildlife, especially if they are big and large and uh, not so well known. Yeah, wild, of course. Yeah, I'm not working with uh, captive animals. I mean, I did that in the past when I was in Saudi Arabia, but it was to reintroduce the oryx and other species. But since uh, I left Saudi, we decided to really focus, I decided to really focus on wild animals. So Borneo and orangutan was a bit of a surprise to me because I was not necessarily interested in Asia, in orangutan at this time. But Isabel, with the other co-founder of Utan, was really keen on orangutan. So 
she visited the place and she told me that the place was very, very nice and very interesting because 30 years ago in Kinabatangan, the place where we are still uh, working today, there was this very interesting situation where you had people and wildlife sharing the same environment, the same habitat. And for me, this was very exciting because the other places I used to work before, if I wanted to see wildlife, I had to go far away from the villages. And if I wanted to see or stay with the villagers, I didn't see wildlife because wildlife was gone. But not in Kinabatangan. In Kinabatangan, we had this situation, for example, where we had the day we visited the first time, the first day we visited Sukau, the village where we are based, there was this majestic big orangutan in the middle of the village, in a large tree that was in the middle of the village. And then there were elephant signs all around the village. So this was a situation where we had people and wildlife living in the same place, but of course, a lot of conflicts from this situation. And with Isabel, our interest in the very beginning was really, as I said earlier, was really to try to find ways for people and animals to coexist. And this is why we picked up Kinabatangan. So for me, it was an accident. The selling point, though, was when Isabel told me that in Borneo, in Sabah, more specifically, there were elephants. I didn't know that we had elephants in, uh, in Borneo. And I'm super duper keen on elephants. So for me, this was a selling point. I moved uh, to Sabah, well, in 98, yes. I don't think that I would say we would stay so long, but uh, nearly 30 years later, we are still here. And and, and that's like a, a long-term journey. Like, do you see yourself moving away from there or you have too much work to accomplish still and, uh, and you think you're going to stay? Actually, this is an excellent question. What's next? Because... Something I didn't realize when I started to work in conservation is that if you want to achieve results, you need time. Time is really the essential parameter that conservationists need if they want to achieve something. It took us more than... It's not a startup. Yeah, so this is a thing. So at the beginning, I thought, well, I will go to Malaysia, and then I will go somewhere else, because the world is big. There are so many species of animals that I am interested in. But what I really realized soon is that if we really want, as I said, if we want to uh, to make a difference, yeah, you need to commit your time. And so that's why after 25 years, we are still in uh, in Sukau, in Sabah. So, so why there is still so much we want to do and we can do, a lot of things we couldn't do maybe 20 years ago that now we can start doing because the time gave us the knowledge of the local situation, uh, allowed us to gain trust from the government, from the authorities, from the private partners, from the communities as well. And so as long as you don't gain this trust, I would say that your efforts are meaningless. They are not sustainable. They are not viable. But when you have achieved a certain level of trust, you can really start thinking and acting on the long term. And this is what we need in conservation. So let's go back a second to the moment you arrived there and you said you walked into the village and for the first time wildlife was right there with the people. But my first thought would be, if an or- not knowing anything, if, if an orangutan is in the middle of a village, is being fed? or been in conflict, I imagine, or, or, or upset that someone has done something. Was that the case? Or how, cause they're large animals and they can be scary, they are. I guess. 
so what was the situation there where they like was this a, sort of a like a, a friendly leaving with the villagers because there was a relationship built or was it just a transit or is just an animal and another animal ignoring each other and just using the same space no i mean it's a very good point as well i mean orangutan can be very scary because they are big isn't it and so for people who don't know big, yeah. what is an orangutan uh, they can be scared And don't forget, there is not only orangutan, we have also elephants and other species that are quite impressive in the area. So yeah. this was exactly the type of question we wanted to understand. First of all, was coexistence uh, something that the people were uh, willing to accept or not? What kind of conflict this situation did create? Because when we started to talk to the people in the village, they told us that this situation was very new. They said that in the past, There was a lot of forest, animals stayed in the forest and they didn't come close to the village, even less inside the villages. Yeah. And so this situation was quite new and they didn't really know how to handle it, to manage it. And sure enough, there were conflicts, uh, there were animals, including orangutan, coming into people's crops and um, orchards and eating their food, eating their crops. And so this created a lot of resentment from uh, the community. One particular uh, example was the elephants, actually not the orangutan, who used to come to the local graveyards in the village, and they were because the graveyards were inside the forest, and when the elephants would come, they would play with uh, the graves, they would destroy the tombs, they would dig out the bones from the ancestors, So you can imagine that the people in the village were really, really resentful towards the elephants. Of yeah. course, upset. Yeah. And so this is a kind of situation wow. we witnessed at this time. And what we realized was that if we want to protect wildlife, it's not enough to tell people, ah, oh, wildlife in orangutan elephants are fully protected. You have to let them go, blah, blah, blah. No, we have to better to spend time to better understand people's problems and people's aspirations and then work on this issue. So, for example, for this example of a graveyard earlier, we worked with the communities very soon in the project to find a solution. The solution was to protect the graveyards with electrical fences and so elephants wouldn't come to the graveyard anymore. By doing this, the conflict was mitigated. And over the years, what we saw in this village is that people became much more uh, accepting of the elephants. And today, you go to Sukao, people are very happy to live with the elephants and to see the elephants passing by. So this is an example with uh, uh, elephants. Same applies to orangutan. 25 years ago, in Malaysia, people, they love Dorian fruits. Dorian is a fruit that you Finally, in Southeast Asia, a lot of people don't like it, especially the Westerners. But the local people, yeah, I love it. I do love it. Exactly. So They good. say it's the smell of uh, hell and the taste of paradise. Actually, I like it. Yeah. Thing is, locals, it. they love it, but orangutan too. So this creates problems because the orangutan always mm -hmm. come first. They climb the trees. And they can eat the entire production of the tree in a couple of days. And so people are really upset as well. And people sometimes they shot the animals or they scared the animals away. So here again, we try to find solutions to mitigate the conflict. And as soon as you start to work with the community, as soon as the community sees that you are really 
try to listen to their uh, problems, things change. And here again, as we discussed earlier, to get there, you need time. You need time first to learn the language, to understand the local culture, right. and to work with... You need exactly. to be trusted by them because exactly. I suppose you come also as an outsider, although you have the interest of both parties. They're like, yeah. who is this guy? What do they exactly. want So, yeah, so this was a lot of um, experiences like this. So I started, I mean, we started to say and to talk about wildlife because this is my interest, but very soon I also realized that if we want to do conservation, it's not really about animals, it's about people. People is always a problem. Right. I was about to say that it seems to me like the, the conservation of animals is all about mitigating the issues and the needs of the people around the wildlife because they're the problem. Wildlife yeah, the thing is that, as we all know, I mean, uh, we are more and more people on planet Earth, and so there is less and less space yeah. for us and for the other species. So we need to find solution to this uh, growing uh, problem or situation. And sure enough, creating protected areas is really, really, really important and necessary, and we need more. Problem with protected areas is that it doesn't uh, accommodate all the species, especially the large mammal species, because these large mammals, including red apes, elephants, deer, and so forth, predators, they need huge areas to survive. So sooner or later, these species, they will come outside of the protected areas, protected forest or whatever. And then they will enter people's land. So we will have always this situation and more and more where people and wildlife are found in the same spot. And we need to address this issue because this is a growing issue and the landscape at the global level is more and more fragmented, meaning that this network of protected forests mm -hmm. is not large enough and becomes more and more uh, yeah, uh, cut off in small fragments. So we need the protected areas. We need the population of wildlife there, but we also need to address these problems when animals come in close contact to people. And this is what Utan, in 96, when we created our organization, decided to do. We wanted to see what does it take for people and wildlife to live or to coexist, if you want, in the same place. Knowing that species like orangutan or elephants, just to speak about these two, are mostly found outside of protected areas nowadays. And so these many years later, almost like going towards the third decade, have you found some solid answers to these big questions of cohabitation and coexistence? Or, you know, have you, have you, you must have some pathways to solutions. Do you have some examples? And uh, is it a case of education? Because I'm trying to imagine the situation of uh, an elephant to get into the village. And of course, I need to protect whatever the elephant is going after. So there must be some, you know, there is a physical response. There is a, do you let them do? What is the, the, the brief is, let them do what they need to do, don't harm them? Or is there a scare away tactic? Or what kind of approach in a situation of interference do you do you kind of operate with? Well, uh, addressing this issue of uh, conflict, I don't really like the term conflict because as you said just now, Yes. We cannot forget that we are the one to encroach in their uh, area, in their habitat, in their space. So when there are conflicts, yeah. people tend to forget that we are the one to cause it to start with. So anyway, the thing is that 
conflict between wildlife and people is really global. It's not only happening in Borneo, it's happening everywhere with all kinds of different species. And the underlying reasons are multifactorial, meaning that there is a lot of different reasons why these animals come in close contact with people and why sometimes this situation creates conflict. So the first thing to do is to really try to understand, first of all, if when these animals are coming outside of the protected areas, do they create some damages? If they do, what kind of damages? What kind of conflict is this? Is this a real conflict or is this something that is perceived as a conflict? We need to know if the animals need to go outside of these uh, protected areas or if they prefer to go outside of these uh, protected areas because there is food, for example. One example, if you are growing uh, some food for us that the animals living close by love, of course, they will leave the forest and they will come into the people's crop to eat because it's easy food, easy access. So in this case, we also create an incentive for the animals to come and damage our own uh, crops. So this is all, the, all these parts are from the wildlife perspective. We need to really understand this as far as we can. But actually the m most um, important part, which is also the more difficult part to tackle, is uh, people's perception. We need to understand better what people are ready to accept or what are they ready to give to coexist with these animals. Are they willing to, yes or no? Are they inclined to? What are the incentives we can create to show them that conservation is not something that is going to go against their own interest, but in the contrary, conservation can also provide and sustain their own livelihood. And so we need, here again, to work with the communities or with the people, wherever they are, to try to find solutions that work both ways for the animals and for the people as well. So to answer your question, no, there is not a single uh, and simple uh, solution or answer to this question. Or a pathway, yeah. You, every, every situation, every situation, it's unique and uh, and needs to be addressed as it, as it presents. Yeah, exactly. Every situation is unique, so we need to better understand it and then to come up with... Um, with solution or suggestion and test them with the people you are working with and see how they react and see if um, if this can work. But I, I would like to add something else. What I have learned over the years is that people are the real problem. At the same time, nature and wildlife is super duper resilient. Yeah, when I look at this global issue, which is mitigating, mitigating sorry, conflict or uh, mitigating uh, coexistence between wildlife and uh, people. I mean, two major things. First is that there is not a simple solution that is going to address everything at once because every single problem is really specific to the species and to the community you are working with. So you need to really understand both the ecology of the species and also the, the community of the people you are working with to try to find solutions that will work both ways. So this is the first thing. But the second thing I learned is that if you give a chance to nature, this is very resilient. Nature is resilient and wildlife for most species are also very resilient and can adapt to situations that are just amazingly 
uh, far from their natural habitat. The place where I work in, uh, in Sabah is primarily a mosaic landscape, which is, imagine a landscape where you have a lot of crops, mostly uh, palm, oil palm uh, fields, and a bit of forest here and there, and a lot of roads and villages and so forth, and a bit of trees and small patches of forest that are really uh, widely distributed in the landscape, but very, very small patches. You don't expect to see an orangutan living there. Well, this is what they do. They have been able to somehow take advantage of the current situation, and they are now more and more commonly found in the plantation. And to me, as a conservationist, as a primatologist, I'm very surprised to see that. But here again, orangutans are great eggs, are hominids, are very smart, very resilient, and able to adapt. And it's not only the only species that can do that. Many, many, many more can do it. And this is one of our uh, topic of research. We want to understand how wildlife can um, adjust, can adapt to drastic changes in their environment. And I'm really amazed every day to see how dynamic is nature and if you give it a chance, meaning that if you don't exterminate everything, well, a lot of the species, not all, some species, they cannot do that, but a lot of species, they can adjust and they will, they will come back, but we need to give that a chance. So my point here is to say that although every single situation is unique, there are solutions for all of these situations as well. Um, so can you give me like a little bit of a, an understanding of uh, the population, the human population and the orangutan population that your organization serves when we're talking about numbers, you know, these villages and these people that are integrating with nature. How big is that? What are we talking about? So overall, Borneo, which is in Southeast Asia, the third largest island in the world, so it's a big, big uh, area. But uh, it's still quite relatively empty of people. The human density is quite low compared to the other part of Southeast Asia, which is one of the reasons why we still have significant uh, wildlife and biodiversity on the island. To zoom in uh, to Kinabatangan, where we work, there are a few villages, like for example the place where I'm working in Sukao, there is about 1,000-1,200 people. They are all Orang Sungai, people from the river, they used to be fishermen. If we look at the um, water basin, I don't know, there is maybe uh, just a few thousands people, maybe 15-20,000 people. So there is not a huge uh, human density, which is of course one of the reasons why we still have so much wildlife, especially species like proboscis monkeys, clouded leopard, elephants, orangutans, so forth. In terms of wildlife, <coughs> uh, as we discussed earlier, the Kinabatayan is one hotspot for biodiversity. This is why 30, um, 25 years ago we started our project, because of this amazing uh, wildlife concentration and diversity. But what we have seen over the years is that there is still a lot of animals, Maybe in terms of biomass, meaning the number of the mass of animals per kilometer square is the same, but what we are witnessing is a change in the composition of the biodiversity. So what is happening is that we are losing the species that are really specialized, 
specialized, sorry, to survive into the forest, what we call the forest specialist species. Some of them are really uh, disappearing. It's not necessarily the big species, there are small frogs, small uh, mammals and so forth, so species that people don't really pay attention to. But in the contrary, what we see coming in is a generalist species, a common species. If we look at bigger species, so proboscis monkey, for example, that we only find in, the, in, in Borneo, the population has been stable over the years, so these guys so far are uh, adapting quite well and surviving quite well in Kinabatayan, but it's because there is still a lot of forest along the river, and this species in particular stays close to the river. Orangutans, we used to have tens of thousands of them in the entire floodplain, I would say, 100 years ago. This is a kind of uh, genetic data that we have. Today, we have only 800 left. Okay, so the decline has been super, uh, super, super drastic. We started the work 25 years ago. There were 1,100 in the area, so as of today, it's 775, something like this. So the trend is still going down. But what is happening, and I think I, we touched on it during the first part of the discussion, what is happening is that some of the orangutans who are found in the forest are now leaving the small patches of forest and they go into the plantation. So when I say we have about 800 orangutans in the Kinabatan, this is in the forest of Kinabatangan. Now we have a few more uh, yeah, a few of them more in addition to that in the plantation, but it's very, very difficult to know exactly how many of them are found outside of the forest uh, landscape. So all in all, the, forest, the orangutan population is still going down a little bit, but because there is no deforestation anymore in the area, well, the, we are uh, witnessing a stabilization of this population, and if everything goes well, the number will uh, recover. But Orangutan being such a slow breeder, it's actually the slowest mammal, uh, the slowest breeder uh, mammal species. They produce in average one baby every eight years, and a mother during her lifespan will produce four kids. So it will take a long time for the population to really build up back these numbers. Elephants are following a similar pattern, except that they are breeding much faster than the orangutan, especially in Borneo. It might be because they are of smaller size than the other elephants, but we think that the interval between two births for Borneo elephant is shorter than the other uh, subspecies in mainland Asia. And because of this, actually, the elephant population in Kinabatangan has increased uh, over the past uh, few decades. Today we have maybe 250 of them in Kinabatangan. But overall in Sabah, the population of elephants remains stable. We are at 1,000, 1,500 individuals only. And they are only found in Sabah for the entire island of Borneo. So, to summarize, Sabah, it's not that big, but there are not too many people, only uh, three or four million people. And this kind of low, relatively speaking, low density of people can also explain why we still have so much protected forest and so much wildlife in it. It's true that in places where you have a huge uh, human density, a huge uh, human pressure, it's much more complicated to secure land for wildlife, to uh, protect your protected areas, and also to uh, allow animals to come in uh, people's area. 
but it's possible. I mean, uh, for, for example, for those of you who have been to India, this is what's happening uh, on a daily basis, where you have a landscape with people everywhere, and you still have tigers, you still have elephants, and so forth. So it's, yeah, it really depends. But for us in Sabah, to finish on this, yeah, I mean, the what we try to do is to um, maintain the population of iconic species like orangutan, and we try to restore the habitat to give a chance to these species that really depend on the forest to survive. Another example, the gibbon. The gibbon needs the forest to survive, and we have seen a drastic decline of the gibbon population in our area for the past 30 years because the forest has been so fragmented. So by recreating this connectivity, recreating these corridors, we hope to give a chance to this kind of species to survive and to recover. What would you say that in, in these 30 years that you spent there, what do you think it's been the biggest success in terms of conservation effort? One thing that you'd say immediately, it's like, oh, this, you know, maybe it took a while, this, we did it and it's working. Well, the, the, the major success I can see is the local community of Suka, the people of Suka, the villagers, are much more aware of what's going on and they are much more willing to try to coexist with wildlife. And this is really cool. It's certainly thanks to Utan, huh? I, I need to be honest. It's also because in our area there is tourism, for example, and people understand that the tourists, if they come to Suka, it's to see wildlife, so we need to protect wildlife. But an example uh, we mentioned already, but I want to come back to it, is we started uh, Utan and we were doing orangutan conservation and we realized that actually for the local communities orangutan it was not really important, it's not really something which is part of their culture. I would talk about fish and fish conservation to the Rangsungai, to the local communities. This would really be something super exciting for them and they would really open their eyes and start to tell us a lot of stories. But when we started about orangutan, they were like, well, orangutan, they are there. They were not interested at all. So this species has not the same uh, values, the same attractions in the West, first thing. So we were in this situation where we thought, well, everybody loves the orangutan. But it turns out that the people in the village were like, orangutan, they are pests, they destroy our crops, blah, blah, blah. So we were struggling at the beginning to try to find a way to um, convince people of the importance of the orangutan. But little by little, we also understood that the orangutan was really not part of their uh, priorities. But another species was a big problem. This is the elephant, and we spoke a little bit about it already. For the communities at this time, when the elephant destroyed the graveyard and so forth, this was a real issue. So what, that's why, by protecting the graveyard from this uh, elephant raiding activities, all of a sudden, the people in the village started to understand, ah, conservation can be useful. Conservation can use can be used to address some of our issues. And the fact that today, in Sukao, the people of the village, they are the first one to want to protect their elephants. A few years ago, for example, the government came up with this proposal to remove all the elephants from the area because there were too many conflicts, and the people said, no, we are not going to translocate our elephants. They stay here. But 25 years ago, this is what the people would have said. They said, yes, remove them. So my point is that we have seen over the years a change in the, in the in the way people perceive wildlife and coexistence, and a change for the better. And for us, for me, this is a this is a success story. Here again, I don't want Utan to claim everything. It's not only us. There is a lot of partners working in uh, in Kinabatangan. But at the end of the day, this is 
our vision. We really want to try to find ways for people and wildlife. Somehow we need to manage a coexistence. This is the only way if we want to secure a future for wildlife. And has anything changed in their perceptions with orangutan, or we're still at the same point where they see them a little bit as pests and a little bit as a, you know, something that shouldn't be there or that relate to? Have you had any successes there? Yeah. Yeah, same. I mean, orangutan, their perception has changed as well. They were not interested at all uh, by orangutan at the beginning. At most, yeah, they would see it as pests. Now, because of all the education and awareness program made by our teachers in the villages and in the schools, at least the people they know that orangutan is very unique. It's something else. I mean, we have to imagine something. People are in the village. They see orangutans, maybe not on a daily basis, but mm-hmm. they know that the orangutans are there. They don't know necessarily that this is so unique. Yeah. And so, uh, for a lot of them, when we explain them, well, orangutan, it's only here. You don't have them anywhere else in the world. And they're like, really? They know more. Actually, it's very funny. It's very interesting. They know more about lions and uh, this kind of iconic species from Africa than about our own local species. So first, to raise this uh, pride of being part of a unique ecosystem is very important, and this is working, of course, to raise this knowledge. And then after that, to talk to people and to try to identify what are the problems they can face with orangutan. If, let's say, people are afraid of orangutan because they are big, we explain to them orangutans are not dangerous. We bring them to see wild orangutan in our site. And this is the same. For most of them, they haven't really seen an orangutan. They see the nest, they see the damages, but they don't really see the individual. So when we bring them to see a wild orangutan, they always are amazed. They really like it. And so today, as I said earlier, there is a lot of tourism going on in Kinabatangan, so not only in Sukao, but in uh, the other villages as well. And people know, the local community knows that one of the reasons why there is so much tourist is because of species like the proboscis monkeys, the elephants, and the orangutans. So they also understood now that because this place is so unique with so much wildlife, this will attract uh, tourists. And then they can make a living out of it. Right. It's all about securing a living. It's all about securing a safe living for the communities as well. Yeah, this is definitely important. This is not the only uh, way to uh, to do conservation, but this is an important part of it. We cannot just we cannot come to a community and just say, "Orangutan is so cool. We need to protect it." This won't work. We really need to try to find ways the community can relate to, and then move forward together. So you, I guess this is what has led you to create and be part of another organization that would do a little bit more than just find the data, the science, uh, the holistic conservation, which seems already a lot, to be honest. But then at the end of the day, you every country has to deal with politics and with uh, decision-making, and some of that decision-making sometimes is done separately from science. So do you want to tell us a little bit more about your organization, what's the name, and what have you done, and what are you doing to kind of impact uh, uh, on that front? Yeah, so we talked a lot about what Hutan has been doing, has achieved, and is still doing, and is uh, hopes to achieve in the in the future, and it's it's really great. But since the very beginning, I was always thinking about how could we try to scale up the results of our efforts in the field because what we do in Kinabatangan, even if it's working in Kinabatangan, the impact remains very localized. 
So this is where we got this idea, one of my friends and myself, Eric Meyer and myself, to create Borneo Future. The tagline is Science for Change. The idea of Borneo Futures is um, to try to identify for Borneo, so Malaysia, Indonesia, Brunei, uh, some questions that are quite important uh, to address. For example, what does it what is the real impact of deforestation, or the impact of flooding, and uh, relationships between uh, flood and deforestation, the real impact of uh, oil palm on the island ecosystem, but also the social uh, dimension of it, and so forth. So we highlighted a series of questions, following a lot of discussion with uh, Indonesian people, Malaysian people, and so forth. And then we developed a network of scientists all over the world to work on this question and we started to publish science. And the idea was not to only publish science but to use the results and disseminate the conclusions to reach out the land deciders, the politicians, the people from the industry to inform them about the situation and about what could happen depending on the various choices that are available to them. So this was the idea of Born New Future and we started this 15 years ago and um, over the years, we have published a lot of things. We have been, uh, of course, able to influence some decisions. Now it's very difficult to know exactly uh, to which extent we have impacted this decision or that decision because, of course, here again, there are so many different players acting all together. It's, it's, it's very difficult. But I do think that Born Your Future has really brought uh, a few new ideas. Let's say, if we speak about orangutans, for example, we have really highlighted the fact that in Indonesia, not in Sabah where I am, but at least in Indonesia, orangutan hunting was one of the major threats to the, to, to the survival of the species. And now, even the government and the NGOs there, they are really working on this issue. And this kind of things that were not necessarily um, on, the, on people's radar, and we really brought their attention to it. We also uh, highlighted the cost of flood and flooding uh, in Kalimantan linked to deforestation. I mean, this kind of ideas, they are not new ideas. No, but that's but really important data, that, that if you don't have that hand when you're making decisions for new policies, then you're missing a big part of the story. Yeah. And we're able to bring some data and to quantify a little bit all of these issues. So this is what we have done with uh, Borneo Future. What I do think is that to do conservation, you need very good science. At the same time, when you do science, you do not do necessarily conservation. It's two different things. I would say that uh, in my work as a conservationist, science and research is what 20% of my time. But this is really important to do it well. We cannot do conservation just with our emotion, our feeling. We need to have hard data to back up our uh, suggestion, our recommendation, our decision. I want to, I can give you another example. When we started the, the work 25 years ago in Sabah, the official number of orangutan was about 600, 700. Okay. And that's why Sabah was not in the map for orangutan conservation. Nobody knew or nobody wanted to know that there were so many orangutan here. So we start the work in, uh, in Sabah in 98. Nobody knows where they are, but we are like, my gosh, there is a lot of orangutan, much more than what we thought. And so we got the funding from um, a few uh, partners, and together with the Sabah Wildlife Department, we organized a big uh, survey of orangutan across the state. And to do that, we used helicopter for the first time 
this was done this way, and so we were able to really survey the entire state, and we came up with this number of 1,100, 1,100 orangutan instead of 600. Uh, sorry, 11,000 orangutan. <laughs> big difference. Instead, yeah, 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 big difference. Except of 600, uh, instead of 600. So, so before so, wow. the survey, the perception was there are only 600 orangutan. It's not a big issue yeah. whether they're there or not there. Then exactly. you did the survey, and then it turns out there's actually there's a massive population because 11,000 is not a small number. It, Yeah. It was exact, it's exactly the situation actually, because there were a lot of forests that had been already logged, overlogged in the past, and the government at this time, 25 years ago, was in the process of converting it into another type of land use. It's because there, and I can understand why they would say that. They said, okay, there is no timber left, so no revenue from timber. This trashed forests are no use for wildlife. This is what the scientists say, that orangutan cannot survive in disturbed forests, that the surveys that are available through just a handful of them. So it's better for us to convert this trash, this disturbed forest into oil palm plantation, acacia plantation, or whatever. So we use these surveys, and ah, in this same forest I'm speaking about, we find, we found the largest concentration of orangutan for Malaysia. It was about 6,000 animals just for this particular forest. So the government, the wildlife department we, we, we worked with uh, on this one said, well, fine, we're going to do a big um, international conference, the first one in Sabah about orangutan conservation. And so all these uh, results were released, and they really came up like a surprise to many, many people, especially people from the government. And Once we were able to produce a map showing where where the uh, orangutans and how many of them were there, they completely changed their approach for the development of the area. For example, we know that this particular forest I was mentioning just now was supposed to be uh, converted into acacia plantation for pulp and paper. When we started to say, well, if you do that, you're going to destroy 5,000 animals, they just... They just uh, decided not to do it. They didn't want to be criticized. They didn't want, and they knew, like, we have all these animals there. We cannot just destroy them. In the contrary, they decided to protect this forest. So, as of today, 28% of the total land mass of the state is fully protected, which is more than double compared to what it was when we started, before we did this survey. And most of the forests that have been protected in the past 20 years are forests inhabited by orangutans. Yeah. Today, in Sabah, 80% of the orangutan population lives in fully protected areas, based on the surveys that were done 25 years ago. All of this to say is that if we have this kind of data, sometimes you can really influence uh, deciders. And I always say that, to me, conservation is like a guerrilla warfare, You need to have the science ready, the data, the information ready, and you need to wait the proper window of opportunity to make your move. Yeah. Because you never know when this is going to happen. We cannot forget that conservation, we think it on the long term, but most of the time, the partners we are engaging with are always thinking or acting on the short term. So it's super difficult to find an adequation between these two views, these two perspectives, it's possible, but we have to be patient. Yeah. It's like working with communities. We have to be patient. We always have to be right. patient anyway. But the problem is that time is not on our side, so sometimes it's very frustrating. I mean, I, I just can't uh, stop thinking about, I, I mean, how that 
because of that survey, so much work has been done. If that had not happened, you wouldn't have Bhutan right now because the, the population of the orangutans would have been wiped out if those land had been allocated. So you probably would have lost all the diversity in that space. So that's really not a small thing. So that was the basis of all the work you've done. It's fantastic. So where do you see this going now? Of course, you know, this is work that is going to you know, continue after we're gone because this is like a couple of gen- few generations of, uh, of change needed to, to really go back to stability. What's stability in this case? What do you see success going forward? What do you want to achieve? What I want to achieve is uh, for Utan to become self-sufficient uh, in the future. Utan was created by two French people, Isabel and myself. Our uh, dream is to have this organization to keep going, but only with Malaysian citizens, only with local people. Because at the end of the day, it's it's only the local people who can make a long-term difference. I mean, as foreigners, we can initiate projects, what we did. We can uh, initiate uh, yeah, vision and something. But at the end of the day, it's the local people who can make a difference. And this is same than I like to say that, but it's, it's not only uh, in Borneo, it's all over the place, the same. Yeah. The local people, the people who are living in a particular area, they have to be empowered to really start to make a difference. So, so what I do you need to achieve that sustainability yeah. for them? What's missing? Is it to get independence? You mean self-sufficiency from funding, not be dependent from external money, to be fully operational internally and sustainable in that sense? Yeah, it's all of this all together. It's also to have more people trained. And, I mean, the, it's interesting because the younger generation in Malaysia is much more um, aware and much more interested in conservation and all these issues. And so it's easier today to find young students, local students, who can do things and who want to do things that than it was uh, 20 years ago. So I see here uh, light. I mean, there is more and more people who really uh, want to take care of their environment, which is good. So we need ourselves. I see Utan as a as a platform for training. Uh, we, we we offer, or which we want to provide an opportunity for local students to to do more for their own country. Uh, when I speak about self-sustainability, is to to have more people trained from the communities to do the work they are doing, and this is not too complicated I and mean, people are there and they want to do things and if you take the necessary time they will do things so this is this is great uh, the team we are working with is just amazing I mean seriously that's why I think I said that already but that's why I keep on moving and this is my drive it also means yes uh, finding ways to make the financial uh, side of things sustainable so so far, Utan is uh, receiving mostly uh, support from overseas, but we need, and the team actually needs to start to think about their own future. How do they want Utan to keep going? Do they keep? Do they want to keep on asking money from overseas? Do they want to develop their own activities to generate their own funding and so forth? And this is a, actually a transformation program that Utan just started a few months ago. We are at this stage now where we are really training the newer generation, the younger people, to bring 
Bhutan to the next uh, next next step, next level. And this will be their decision. Of course, we are part of the discussion, Isabel and I, but it's, a, it's an interesting process because it's, uh, it takes time here again, but this is necessary. And this is something I really would like to see for Bhutan. And it's not a question of legacy or this kind of stuff. It's just that we need more people on the ground. That's it. If we want to protect wildlife in Kinabataya or elsewhere, we need people yeah. who decide to do it, to make a stand. If not, it won't happen. And so if, if you had a wish that you could put out for someone to help or to support, or what is it that you would want more of from who's in power right now that could, this could give you what is missing? Or is this not possible because this is really just groundwork and needs to happen organically? Because sometimes it's that. Like you can't throw enough money at it, it still just needs to grow organically. I fully agree with that. Money is, of course, a necessity, but this is not uh, an end in itself because I have seen too many projects, of course, a lot of projects that don't have enough money, and it's difficult to start. And I remember when we started at Utan, it was really, really, really difficult. But we always get um, a level where we realize money is not actually the major issue, the major issue is to have the people around who want to, 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 to spend their life to, to do things. And this is also why uh, I think I really am a strong believer in uh, local communities' uh, involvement because they are the people who are living there. Too often, people who are not from the country or the place where they work, they won't commit a long time of their life. They can't. They will always go back home. Okay. And I do think that to achieve results, we need a long-term commitment. So who is better uh, placed than local communities, people living there? But here again, you need to train them, you need to work with them and so forth. So, I, oh yeah, what we want. So so this is something that people overseas uh, cannot really uh, do, I mean, except if they want to dedicate their entire life and uh, go to work in Kinabatayan, you're welcome. <laughs> but my, my point is more... We, there is a lot, a lot of different things we can do as a citizen of the world. I mean, for example, by staying informed about what the real issues are, to me this is very important. Every time I'm traveling uh, in, the, in Europe, in North America, Australia, elsewhere, I'm always surprised to realize how people don't necessarily know the situation on the ground. They have a lot of cliché in their minds that have been produced by media and so yeah. forth, but this is really not the reality. Yeah. I'm living on a daily basis here in Sabah, in Borneo. So I'm always like, hey, how come? I try to explain to them, look, what you think about orangutan, about oil palm, about deforestation. Well, this is not really what's happening or how it is happening there necessarily. I mean, there are a lot of differences. So my point is we need to try to really uh, get the information, of course, but the, the, the right information, the, 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 the information which is So the first step is, is not go there on the ground. Wherever you are, is stay informed, fact-check what you read, yes, real yeah. data. I think Don't so. spread, yeah. uh, don't add on yeah. to the misinformation. Yeah. Just really mm. be an informed citizen. And then you said something else when we were um, chatting um, the other day, which was about conservation starts at home. You want to expand oh, on yeah. that, because that, that, yes. that's another thing that somebody can do in place, wherever you are. 
okay, we need to reconnect, we need to reconnect to nature, we've lost that deep connection. Yeah. If you live in a city, that doesn't mean that you need to wait until you travel to the jungle to be an empath mm. to animal and nature. So what was your take on that? Yeah, I mean, you put it uh, brilliantly. This is a problem. I mean, we have so much problem. I mean, biodiversity is entering a, a big crisis. There are a lot of different reasons. But to me, one of the major reasons is this disconnect between our species and the rest of the animal and the vegetal kingdom. And we are not going to uh, try to understand why it is. I mean, it's another discussion, which is a very interesting one as well. But the fact that we are so disconnected of course, doesn't help us conservationists when we are telling people, hey, we need to protect wildlife. Well, When we, when we crush the spiders, <laughs> when we kill the geckos yes. in the house, so, when we yeah. are just disgusted by anything that crawls or, or a mouse or everything else. And Yeah, and this is a funny part. I mean, uh, a lot of people will tell me, oh, we need to protect them in, in the West. We need to protect orangutans. They're so amazing. Or we need to protect tigers or lions in Africa or elephants. Yeah, we cannot afford to lose this wildlife. And I tell them, yeah, you know what? It's not easy for people, local people, to live with orangutan, with elephant, with tiger, with lion. So we need coexistence. Of course we need coexistence. And so I always ask that. When you find a spider in your home, what do you do? Most of the time people will tell me, well, spider, yeah. dangerous. If you see a snake, do you like to see a snake? Oh, no, they are dangerous. Although we all know that snakes are not dangerous. I mean, seriously, this is in our mind. So my point is to tell people, if we want to save this iconic species, orangutan, elephant, lion, tiger, and so forth, we need to, to build this coexistence. And this coexistence with wildlife, everybody must build it. Of course, people living in France are not going to coexist with elephant or orangutan. But if these people in France cannot coexist with a mouse or with a couple of spiders in their home, I don't think there is any hope for wildlife anywhere in the world. We just need to relearn this connection, this connectivity with the wild world, with the animals who are surrounding us. Because we like it or not, there will always be species coming into our home or our backyards or orchards. We just need to rethink all of this uh, connection we used to have with wildlife in the past, and this we have lost it very recently. Actually, we lost it just a few uh, couple of hundred of, I mean, since industrialization. But it, it is gone, really gone, and it's it's a shame. And this is why we have this crisis today. Actually, I think. Yeah. It's one of the major reasons. So don't go to Sabah to see your underground. Stay where you are. Conserve at home. Don't kill yeah. the pests. And don't kill anything. Exactly. Don't kill anything. And really. Why and, and look and look at this, look at your spider. They yeah, are cute. they're very cute. Actually. Seriously, I, I just started that relationship with my yeah. spider on the, yeah. on the sink, and I'm finding it fascinating. Um, I mean, to me, sorry, conservation starts at home, right. and anyone, anyone can do that. Uh, we can also be so another thing, uh, just very very briefly. We can also be an informed consumer. Because of course we are all part of the problem. We are all consuming things that is coming, I mean, stuff that is coming from all over the world. But well, something we need to think hard. I mean, when we consume this, when we buy this or that, do we really need it? Because at the end of the day, this is this uh, overconsumption that is killing the yeah. planet, and we know that. And here again, we can all be part of the solution. I'm really a strong believer on uh, involving people. Small yeah. thing, yeah, small yeah. thing. 
small things matter. I, I this say, you know, uh, the C is uh, what uh, an addition of small droplets and something like that. I, I really believe in this because I, I don't see what else we could do. We cannot all become the president of a country to make a change. We cannot wait for. Well, we can stop being greedy. We can stop wanting so much that it's at the expenses of something that it's far away, so we don't care because we don't see it. So we need to start caring. Yeah. It is a long journey. Um, I, I am an optimist. I think that we need to crack <laughs> that heart that people have in their chest and just maybe maybe cry a little bit more. So the, at the thought of lo- losing such a beautiful planet. Um, maybe stop going to places like zoos just to see these animals instead of thinking that they're better off in the wild and conserve and preserve. But what's next for you? you are you committing till your end of your days to Bhutan and Sabah or you have some other plans in the work? Do you want to be part of that re-education of conserve at home and do small things? What is your next, uh, or what is, what is well, the evolution of what you're doing? Yeah. Honestly, I don't know. I mean, uh, when I started to, to live in Sabah, I thought to stay just a few years and move on because there are so many places I want to, to visit, to, to see and to, to work. So honestly, I don't know. I think that uh, I really would like to see the next Bhutan, the, this transformation program of Bhutan uh, being completed. It will take another few years, I'm sure. At the same time, well... I'm more and more uh, interested in going back to places like Africa, not to, uh, to live there necessarily, but uh, to try to bring some experience that has been learned here in Southeast Asia and do some cross-pollination right. uh, between projects, between countries. This is something of interest to me. You did mention that, you know, all this work is so localized that it's very difficult to scale elsewhere. And also you can't replicate yourself, but certainly... The skill that you've learned is how to approach this community, the listening skills, how to train other people to maybe to the human part of the work, you know, how, how to be a better mediator. And that, that, that part can be scaled for sure in other places. And you have that skill. And also ideas. And I mean, of course, I have learned this work for more than 30 years now. So sure enough, uh, after all these years, ideas are here. I mean, there is a lot we can exchange. And also for me, I mean, to visit new projects, I always learn a lot when I'm visiting other places. I mean, I always tell my kids or the people I'm working with, you never, you can never stop learning. The day you stop learning, this is the day you become old. And I don't (laughs) want to be old. So, I mean, we can learn every day. Every single day we can learn new things. This is really important to do that. So, I think that, and now, especially now, in this age of technology, we need to have more exchanges between people, exchange ideas, exchange problems, like discussion, communication. I think it's important. Cross-pollination is the key, really. Yeah, cross-pollination, yeah, more and more, I think. And we have done it, and we still do it a lot with our project to send uh, some of our staff here and there to welcome people from other projects. And it's always so rich and so amazing to put people all together. Well, people who are, who have the same passion, who have the same, uh, daily, I mean, not daily life, but, uh, same issues on a daily, uh, daily basis and conservationists. But people, conservationists from Africa, from Asia, from other countries. And when they come to Sabah and they see what we do, it's always amazing. And same for us when we go to these places and, and, it's true that it's exactly what you said. It's difficult to um, 
to you say that to uh, translocate what you have learned in one place to the next, but at the same time, the overall problems remain all the same. So it's just a matter of being flexible enough to try to understand a, a situation, a new situation, if you go to a new place, and bring what your expertise, your ideas, and try to adapt it, to adjust it to this new reality. This is possible, but you need, here again, time and uh, exchanges, cross-pollination. Yeah. This is a one. Thank you so much for your time. This conversation for me was incredibly enlightening. Uh, I absolutely adore everything that I've learned from you, the work that you do. I, I hope that this fast-tracking of involving the community and testing on the baton happens faster than you think. And, uh, um, you know, that the, the success continues. And, of course, I'd love to come visit. Um, we'll be in touch. I'd love to, you know, be in touch again, maybe in another six months and see how things are progressing and uh, um, invite you over for our Influences for Good Summit that will happen at some point next year. Thank you so much, Mark, and um, wish you all the success. Okay, thanks a lot, Natasha, and for everyone who listened. And yes, there is still hope. We cannot give up now. We cannot. We cannot, absolutely. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Influences for Good podcast. I hope you have enjoyed this episode. If so, don't forget to like and subscribe. Also, check our news platform, InfluencesforGood.blog, for more content about our guests or to collaborate with us.